Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Back in 2008, in the midst of both a global economic catastrophe and stalled progress on climate diplomacy, a unique multilateral platform called the Climate Investment Funds was born. The Climate Investment Funds supports the development of clean energy markets and invests in projects and programs that enable clean energy transitions and adaptation to climate change. The CEO of the Climate Investment Funds, Mafalda Duarte, is on the podcast today to explain the significance of this multilateral platform to the common global effort to confront climate change. I will admit to not knowing much about this platform prior to the interview, so I was very glad to bring their impactful work to a broader audience. And as Mafalda Duarte says in this episode, In the coming years, developing economies will account for 70% of the world's energy supply, so the choices that developing countries make today will have a profound impact on our common climate goals. Enjoy the episode, enjoy learning about a multilateral platform that you might not have heard of, and here is my conversation with Mafalda Duarte, CEO of the Climate Investment Funds. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So the Climate Investment Funds were set up in the middle of the last uh, Great Recession, so 2008-2009. And this was uh, as an initiative of the G8. Uh, who clearly understood the need to provide concessional finance to developing countries to enable different investment decisions. So in conversations between some of these G8 economies and the World Bank at, uh, and some of the regional development banks at the time, they decided to set up this multilateral climate fund dedicated precisely to supporting developing countries make um, decisions that would align with climate goals. And this is quite interesting because of the context in which the funds were established. Not just we were in the middle of a recession, which meant many of the same things that we see today vis-a-vis developing countries. Uh, So big Uh, financial crisis, reduced foreign investments in developing countries, uh, trade and remittances that had a significant impact on these economies. And they were also facing growing budget and trade deficits. 
and other uh, other macroeconomic issues such as you know higher rates of inflation, increasing public debt, and so on. So in that context, and and let us recall that back in two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, we still had very few, quite limited uh, levels of investment, for example, in renewable energy, and in most of developing countries there hadn't been even one such type of investment. So it was in this context that the G8 decided to establish these funds and ask the multilateral development banks to spearhead climate-related investments in developing countries and provide the necessary tools and incentives and technical assistance to both governments and private sector to make such investment decisions and different policy choices. This was also a time when the international climate negotiations weren't proceeding as smoothly and steadily as many would have wished. Uh, we, we can just remember this was the year around the Copenhagen COP. Yes. Um, and, and therefore, it, it was a, a strong sign of leadership and a strong sign of from these economies that they 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 wanted to start um, supporting developing countries going in a different way and use the institutions that have a very strong and long track record in supporting developing countries doing so. I mean that's so, interesting. So I mean it was created in the midst of a financial crisis and also in the midst of really stalled climate diplomacy. But it seems that this was one bright spot of that era, the advent of the climate investment funds. Correct. I would think so. And what we have done and the impact that we've had, that we now see after 13 years, uh, proves that. Um, So we started off, I mean, right now we have more than 350 projects, so it's quite a sizable portfolio uh, in 72 developing countries across the range of different sectors. So from from the energy sector, renewable energy investments, to agriculture, to water management, to sustainable forest management. And what we have done was by being there and bringing the multilateral development banks and bringing other finances alongside, because we were basically lowering the cost of capital and taking on risks that others cannot take. Basically, we enable the first, the second, the third of its kind investments, and then from then onwards, in many, in many, in many, in many countries, in many cases, then this type of support and subsidy was no la- no longer needed, and the markets picked up. Mm. So we enable the creation of renewable energy markets where they had never existed and enable then the private sector to take on the the scaling up of that financing and the investments. I want to come back to that last point and have you cite some specific examples that help illustrate what you mean by enabling renewable energy markets to attract the local or the private support that they would need that you help kickstart. Uh, but before we get there, I just want to sort of make sure that I'm understanding your organization correctly, that listeners are. 
you know, basically from what I gather, from what you're saying, from what I've read, the climate investment funds serves as this almost like clearinghouse or intermediary between the multilateral development banks like the World Bank, the Inter-American Development Bank, the Asia Development Bank, plus the private sector, connecting them with projects in the developing world around areas like renewable energy. Almost. Almost. Um, let, let me just tweak your interpretation there a little bit, uh, Mark. So what we uh, what we do, we are that platform that brings multiple partners together. So that's absolutely correct. We bring the multilateral development banks together in each country to be, <clears throat> and and basically by doing so, we want to bring their own financial firepower, so their balance sheets, their technical capability. And we bring them together and we ask of them under the leadership of the governments to engage in strategic dialogues with different ministries, with different institutions in country, including the private sector and other development partners to carve out a coherent package of investments that brings alongside different financiers and, and starts tackling the biggest challenges and sees the biggest opportunities to really catalyze a different pathway in a specific sector. Um, so, yeah. So, for example, um, how would that vision, or how has that vision manifested itself in, you know, say, a country in Africa? So, I'll, I'll give you two examples. I'm going to start off with a, a country in Africa. You've asked for an example in Africa. So in Africa, for example, in Zambia, uh, we went in, we have a, a climate resilience program in Zambia, and we went in, anchored on the Ministry of Finance. We enabled the Ministry of Finance to bring alongside, with the support of multilateral development banks, to bring other ministries to the conversation on how Climate resilience should be mainstreamed in public policy, in public budgeting, uh, in development plans, from the central level to the local level. Uh, and in addition, we also uh, agreed with the government that there would be two sub-basins selected, which are quite vulnerable to the impacts of climate change, where we would be testing different pilot projects, different investments uh, to diversify the livelihoods and better equip the, those populations um, with, with, with the, the skills and the means to withstand impacts. And so, so what would like, what are, what's one of those basins and what, what's happening in that basin that would require people who live or make their livelihood from that basin uh, to, to adapt in, in a way? Uh, one such basin is called Barotze, uh, sub-basin, um, and some of the investments that uh, were... In addition to this uh, engagement with the communities and, and, and building the capacity of the local level administration and the communities uh, in understanding climate change and, and climate resilience and what should be the investments that would better equip those communities to cope with impacts, that's all a, a very important uh, work that, that needs to happen. Um, we also, for example, financed alternative sources of livelihood. Um, one thing that the communities, for example, weren't doing was fish farming. Uh, 
um, and and they started doing that, um, which is something that they had never done, and basically diversifies their income. It they, they also it's a an enhancer in terms of protein levels in their diets, uh, so it has an impact on nutrition levels as well. Um, but we financed uh, irrigation systems, we financed uh, improvement of rural roads to enable access to markets. Um, uh, we financed uh, alternative crops as well, uh, communities uh, growing alternative crops. So it's introducing things and solutions that weren't really existing in the communities, but out of a strong engagement with those same communities, so that you have ownership and understanding of the issues. Um, but, and, and importantly, at the national level, as I was saying, what happened is that the government of Zambia mainstream or brought in climate resilience to several of the sector strategies, to their national development plans, to the budgeting. So suddenly now there were specific budget allocations um, in, in the national budget for, for climate resilience. So you start aligning resources towards those objectives. Another example yeah. that uh, I can give you, talking about uh, uh, energy markets uh, in, in Mexico, back in 2008 and nine, uh, what, what we were seeing was a private capital shying away from these markets and certainly shying away from investing in renewable energy. And so we provided this, uh, our, our capital, which, you know, as I said, is concessional, is more concessional than other uh, financiers and, and is prepared to take on risks that others aren't prepared to take. Um, and with the Inter Inter-American Development Bank and the International Finance Corporation, we finance the first wind projects, IPP projects, or so private sector projects in the country. Uh, and that gave comfort, that gave sufficient comfort to also the, the local commercial banks to start getting engaged. And in fact, then later on to start financing the subsequent uh, projects. That market has grown to, we, we invested in the initial days slightly more than $100 million. Um, and that is a market that within 10 years grew to more than $11 billion. But it's not just the capital. I think the right type of, of capital and the right type of financial instruments is important. But I want to convey this message that it's much broader than that. What we need is use, use the existence of this capital, of this public capital, and bring many other institutions and financiers together into delivering something that is much larger and that tackles financial constraints, but also tackles policy constraints, capacity constraints, um, all of these other barriers to investments. We began this conversation by referencing the failed uh, Copenhagen Climate Accord. Um, but one thing that did come out of, of that accord was this idea that the developed world should put forth about $100 billion a year starting this year or starting last year, actually, in 2020, towards the kind of work that, that you're describing, towards climate adaptation and mitigation and resilience 
in the developing world. And one of the reasons I wanted to speak with you specifically is because you're, you're you know, one of the entities that's actually doing this work, uh, that's both mobilizing the support and actually putting into action uh, these kinds of, of, of funds. So I wanted to just get a sense from you how important is this kind of mobilization to overall goals around climate diplomacy? And have you talk a bit about this idea of, that, of mobilizing that $100 billion a year and, and how important it is? So I want to say something that I say often, and you will see me in my media interventions, which is this, our goals, climate goals, in my view, will be won in developing countries. I I actually, I I definitely think that we need ambition and we need leadership uh, in developed countries. And we are seeing that uh, in part of the developed countries. But we we have to pay close attention to what's happening in developing countries. Developing economies are almost about to be the ones running 70% of our world's energy supply. These are the countries where 97% of global population growth will happen in the years to come. And they are also on track to represent 60% of global GDP. OECD has estimated that um, there's around seven trillion a year needed in investments up to 2030 to meet climate and development objectives. Two thirds of these investments will happen in developing countries. If these investments are not going to be aligned with climate goals, which means low carbon climate resilience, We are basically locking in for decades to come um, investments that, and and basically what that means is that we will not be able to meet our climate goals. Therefore, the importance of developing countries and supporting developing countries and this type of capital that um, climate investment funds provide and others is absolutely essential. And, and we see it and we have seen it. Private capital has other investment options. And in fact, you know, what we have seen, which is quite interesting as well, and there were some estimates made a couple of years ago, we have trillions of dollars in the global economy yielding with negative yields, basically. So, which means that there's a lot of capital out there that could be deployed in developing countries or could be invested in developing countries, earning positive yields. And nevertheless, we are seeing that that's not the case and they are being invested elsewhere and earning negative yields. So, but also then, you know, we have a lot of investors that prefer to invest in economies uh, which they perceive to be or types of investments which they perceive to be much less riskier. Um, so basically, when we talk about public capital, public capital and this type of support to developing countries is absolutely critical to basically reduce the costs 
of capital that are still higher in this country. So if we compare how much it costs, same type of investment in developing countries and developed countries, we see that difference. We see that cost of capital in developing countries can be 10, 20, 30% higher uh, than in, in, in developed countries. Like what? Like a, like a solar farm in California is a lot cheaper to invest in than a solar farm in like Mauritania? The cost of that investment is a lot, are a lot lower uh, in, in developing economies than in developed economies than developing economies, correct? Um, because basically the investors are putting a price on risks as well. And so this, the capital comes in to reduce those costs of capital and take risks that investors aren't prepared to take. Um, so I think it's, and, and therefore, because we are talking about trillions of dollars of investments in infrastructure that will be happening, uh, therefore, the quantum of, of public capital of concessional finance needs to be significant as well. Um, it, it can't be, you know, a, a few billion here or there. It, it, they need to be sizable. And it's worth noting that we are nowhere near that target of $100 billion, are we? Uh, this, you know, it's a controversial topic and people debate. There are different views, first of all, on what that composition of that $100 billion should be, if it should contain public and private, or if it should be just public. Mm. Um, and then there, there have been studies that have shown uh, $60 billion, $80 billion. So the methodologies vary. Um, mm. But I think one general... Um, one general remark and or you know statement that I can make is that definitely we need more ambition, and we need more ambition in the short term, um, because time here is of the essence, and 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 even more so in a post COVID nineteen. Well, it's not even post; we are still in the middle of it, um, but we have to understand that the developing countries are suffering. Uh, they are suffering even more than back in 2008, 2009 um, from that global financial crisis. And, and what we are seeing, unfortunately, as well, and IMF has, has stated this a uh, few times already, um, that not only most of the fiscal stimulus that has been able to be provided to the economies has happened in developed countries. So it, it hasn't necessarily been so much the case in emerging markets in developing economies. But most of that support actually went to emergency measures and stabilization spending and not recovery. And even within that recovery spending, less than 20% to green recovery initiatives. Hmm. So we are clearly behind in terms of what we need to do in levels and the types of investments that need to be supported. Well, let me just push you on that last point. Given what you just described about you know the current state of of the world and the kind of economic stagnation that's happening now in the developing world due to COVID, are there any particular types of investments that might be more catalytic now than they were in the past? 
certainly uh, investments in renewable energy, in energy efficiency, in infrastructure that will enable low carbon climate resilient uh, investments. Uh, but also the land sector is, a, is an important sector because it's labor intensive. Um, so watershed protection, uh, reforestation, afforestation, and other types of investment um, in, in that broader land use sector are good for both from the point of view of job generation uh, or job retention, uh, but also in terms of economic value added. So I, I, I can tell you, we have been measuring in our portfolio, the impact in job creation of renewable energy investments and economic value added, uh, and they are quite significant. So this is a proof of, of the mm. fact that in climate related investments, generate a good amount of jobs and certainly generate in, in the energy sector, they generate more jobs than the equivalent in the fossil fuel industry. Could you give me an example of an investment that your organization was involved with that you know was particularly robust when it comes to job creation? I can we have a very large portfolio. Um, in the energy sector, I, I, I don't have on top of my head the numbers of specific projects and how many jobs they've generated, but I can tell you that we have around a 5.5 billion uh, worth portfolio in, in the energy sector. And that is generating around 6 million jobs. Hmm. Is there any one project you could tell us about that you're particularly excited to see unfold over the coming years? So I'll, I'll give you another couple of examples. I've already talked about in general terms about Zambia and uh, Mexico. Uh, let me give you two other examples. So in uh, Morocco, um, we are supporting the largest concentrated solar power plant um, in the world, 500 megawatts out of a big vision in the country to really shift their energy mix um, and have it at least half coming from renewable energy sources by uh, 2030. I mean, they, they have kept becoming, they, they have um, revised their targets every few years and become more and more ambitious, but with a, with a big vision of moving very significantly and aggressively uh, and changing their energy matrix. We've, we've supported that um, and concentrated solar power for the listeners is not solar PV, it's a different technology and it's a much more expensive technology. But it has benefits because it's not, uh, it, it's not intermittent like uh, solar PV. Uh, we've financed um, that, that project. Not only we were able to reduce the costs um, of that tech, the, the, the technology, we also enable the private sector sponsors that were involved to learn from those investments and then turn around and bid in other, in other countries at much lower cost. So the benefits were not just in Morocco, but the benefits were global because now basically there was more experience with the technology and the deployment of the technology and that enabled the, the private sector 
to, to bid at a much lower cost. Uh, and while we were doing so, of course, multiple jobs uh, generated and provision of clean energy to more than um, a million um, Moroccan um, uh, households. So that's that's one example that we are very proud and it's a it's a widely known example uh, of a project. Another interesting example, which I've actually visited myself, I visited our projects in in Ghana in the in the forestry sector, um, and there we are really trying to work across the supply chain, both with the government and the public authorities and the private sector, uh, and. And work not just on seed banks and seedlings and provide training to the communities, um, but really enabling the communities to shift their paradigm and understand that farmers that are growing cocoa are better off producing their cocoa under trees than exposed to the sun. Mm. Not only they they have better yields, but now they are also preventing deforestation, which has a many other environmental uh, and, and health-related benefits as well. Interesting. And it's worth noting that Ghana is one of the world's largest exporters of cocoa. Correct. And so um, it, and it's interesting, too, because I was at, before COVID, I was in Ghana looking at some cocoa farms and in the context of fighting deforestation. But there it was in the context of um, helping farmers not want to turn their land over to gold miners who would raise the land and clear uh, for, for gold mines. But here it's another aspect of enabling cocoa farmers to you know, better produce products that's also in the service of fighting climate change. That's interesting to see. Correct. And one of the interesting, the very interesting things about that program, um, and I, as I said, I visited myself, so I have firsthand experience. Uh, when I heard the young, young people uh, involved now in the cocoa sector, uh, pe- young people that, and young men that were planning to migrate to Europe, I spoke with a, a, a very a young man. Uh, his name is Kenneth. Um, and we've actually documented his story as well. And and he was telling me and was telling us that had it not been for this program and the opportunities that it was uh, providing, um, he would have tried and and he was fully aware of the dangers and the risks of trying to migrate from Ghana all the way to to Spain. Uh, but he was prepared to do it, and as and he said, uh, along with many others of his colleagues, because the worst for them was to feel that their parents had done so much for them and they couldn't pay back. And so these are not, you know, sometimes as well we have this perception that people that are trying to migrate into Europe from Africa may be, you know, the non-educated. Um, parts of the population, but clearly this example that I'm giving shows that it's not the case. These were young men that were graduated. They had uh, they had a university degree. They were trying to look for, they were trying to find jobs and, and start raising a family and, and, and help their uh, parents and, and, and brother families, and they couldn't do it. Um, and so th- these are the real stories that uh, that are happening, that are moving and touching, that are happening. Um, and, and these programs are connecting a number of dots um, 
climate change, with development objectives, um, social inclusion objectives, uh, empowerment of, of youth, empowerment of women. These are all you know, really important features of what we need to do when, when we are, I mean, we didn't talk, Mark, about this whole uh, dimension of just transition and how important this is for climate action. In fact, it's it's one of the. It will be. Uh, it it will be. I think the essential factor that will determine whether or not we will be able to meet our climate goals as well. Is is whether or not we anchor what we do and what we invest in, in principles of just transition, and social inclusion, and making sure that people are not left behind. Which again, I think points to your initial remark that you know, the success and failure of our common climate goals will rest on, on what happens in terms of investments in the developing world. I'm absolutely persuaded and convinced that that is the case. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you so much, Mafalda. Thank you, Mark. It was a pleasure speaking with you today. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Mafalda Duarte. And you should expect lots more climate coverage from a multilateral perspective in the weeks and months running up to the major COP26 climate change conference in Glasgow, Scotland. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.